Amen. Can we give them a hand? Not only is God faithful, so are they. So that's good. Uh, just three announcements for this morning. Um, There's not video announcements, although there is still technically video of me. So, uh, firstly, please reminder that uh, reminder that we'll be having a worship evening with Jeremy Riddle on Friday, the fifth of July. So that's just two weeks' time. It's coming close now. Uh, you can buy tickets uh, after the service. There will be tables outside. Uh, the cost of the ticket is 175 rand, and there are also card facilities available. Uh, for tickets that are purchased here locally, we kept some aside. 10% of the income from those tickets is actually going to a, a Hatfield Art Centre music school that we planted in Mamalodi about a year ago. So there's some uh, good cause being supported by that. Uh, tickets are also available on CompuTicket, um, but all seating is actually unreserved. So you need to plan to come early on that Friday. In case you're not sure who Jeremy Riddle is, we'll, uh, he sings a lot of, he's previously been with Bethel and is pastoring a church in California at the moment. He's, sing, he's written a lot of the songs that we sing like This is Amazing Grace or One Thing, uh, Your Love Never Fails is perhaps the, the, the words that we would know. So he sings many of the songs, that, uh, he's written, sorry, many of the songs also that we sing here. Next announcement, uh, because of the Jeremy Riddle concert, the Emmet Ministry Shabbat service that would have been on the 5th of July has moved a week earlier, so that's on the 28th of June now. It will be in the minor auditorium at 7pm, and so all are invited to join us there. It is a family-friendly service where we would pray and also learn a little bit about reaching the Jewish community in South Africa. They're also going to be having a guest speaker from uh, the USA. His name is uh, Jeffrey Cohen, uh, sharing on that night as well. And then last announcement for this morning for our members, if you're wanting to, I'll speak more in this direction, if you wanted to have your uh, child dedicated to the Lord, uh, that's going to be an, there'll be an opportunity for that on the 14th of July, but it is important that you do register and let us know that you want to do that. And so in the, uh, the reception desk in the foyer, there's application forms there, or you can during the week just email queen at hatfield.co.za and she'll be able to, queen will be able to connect you with the process. As I've said, it is important to register, but if you can please do so uh, by the 8th of July, so a week before the 14th, that will really help us just plan that and so on. So that is for uh, people who are members here at Hatfield. And those are the Kingdom Initiative announcements uh, for this morning. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and just say it's time for the sermon. And hopefully that means you decide to listen. Can we pray? And then we'll turn our attention to, to the Word of God. Father, thank you for your presence with us in the service this morning. I do want to pray, Lord, and ask that you continue to presence yourself with us as we share around your Word and as we think about the things that you're directing us towards this morning. I pray, Lord, that the seeds from this Word would get planted in each person's heart just as is necessary and that there would be much fruit that comes from your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for the message this morning is, we're busy with our Be Ready for More part of our series, but the title for this morning is Be Ready to Invest Time. Now before you get too worried about time, we'll talk a little bit about it later. But we want to, I wonder what your first experience of time has been. I remember as I was preparing for this, I was wondering and trying to think, when did I first become aware of time? And uh, the first memory I have is when I was about five years old. I think 
my mom was, I was going to school the next year and my mom wanted to make sure that I knew how to tell time before I went to school. I don't know why she felt it was important, but it was important. I remember sitting in, a, in my folks' bedroom and she had this big alarm clock. If my memory serves, it was red. And then she would tell me, you know, this is what the little hand does and this was the big hand. And then she would turn it and I had to figure out what the time was and, until she felt that I you know, knew what quarter to eight was when school would start and all those things. It's essential life skills for a five-year-old to know. And so this was a very positive memory for me because um, I love learning. I was really looking forward to going to school. Uh, I'm actually one of the people who loved school. Don't throw stuff. Um, but it was a positive experience because I, I was learning about time and it was learning and it was getting ready for, to go to school. And it was just a, you know, time spent with my mom. It was, a, it was a good memory. One of the other memories I have, uh, early memories I have about time, happened the next year when I'd actually started school. Um, it happened to work out that my folks could go on a holiday, but it was during school time. And being very responsible parents, and because it was probably my first year at school, they decided that I needed to stay in school and, and not go with on holiday. It's horrible. Okay. <laughs> but, but they made a good decision, and so I had to, for the week that they went on holiday, I went and stayed with my grandparents who lived uh, in a town just next door, basically. It was about 10 minutes away, but um, probably... The trip, as I have to guess it today, would have taken about 20 minutes from my grandparents' house to the school. Now, we stayed literally like five minutes walk from the school, so the 20-minute drive felt very long. But there was a problem that developed in that my gran never got me to school on time. And so the one morning we arrived so late that I actually had to climb over the gate to get into the school and, and, and run to the class. And, and as a six-year-old, this was deeply <laughs> embarrassing for me. Um, and I probably never recovered from it. And so I became, had quite this um, anxiety around time developed in my life. One of the ways this played out is, as I said, we stayed really close to the school. Um, but my brother and I would leave at 7 o'clock. School started at quarter to 8. We would leave at 7 o'clock just to make sure we weren't late. And also preferably to be the first people there. Um, and so I lived with this anxiety for many years around time and not being late. And this was reinforced later on when I did some military service where if you were late or didn't make time, you got punished severely. And so I had both these experiences in my life about time, something that was really good and positive and affirming, and then something that actually caused anxiety for me. And to this day, even though I think the Lord has done substantial work in my life, being late's not my favorite thing. Um, in fact, I can become, if you speak to my family, I can become a bit of a time Nazi. Um, especially in the mornings, because, you know, school starts at a certain time, or the plane takes off at a certain time, and nothing changes. Okay. I wonder what your experience of time has been. Maybe it's been very positive, perhaps it's been negative, perhaps you're sitting here and you're just feeling the weight of time, that there's just not enough hours in the day. And what we want to do this morning is look a little bit about what God says and what the Bible tells us about time. So as I mentioned, we're busy, God spoke to us last year and said that we must be ready to see his glory on display, and we've been unpacking that theme this whole year. But for this term, or this part of the term, we're feeling specifically to focus on being ready for more. And the way we can be ready for more is to consider this aspect of stewardship that we've been speaking about for about the last four weeks now. And uh, you remember Pastor Louis started the series, and he said one of the central ideas around stewardship is that God owns and we manage. Everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything belongs to God and God owns and we manage. Now, it's this interesting kind of 
we use the word manage, but you could use the word stewardship. It's an interesting tension. I have to hold things in my hand like they don't belong to me, but yet I've got to hold them tight enough that I can be fully responsible for God's things that he entrusts me with. But God owns and I manage, and we looked at material resources, our finances, how God owns that, and how we steward those well. Last week, we looked at relationships and intergenerational um, aspects of this, where because we're made in the image of God, and we have to steward the image of God, not only in ourselves, but also in our relationships and interactions with others. And then if you may remember, Pastor Louis shared about taking the shape and the texture of God with us into different spaces. And as we meet with God we, and we experience his presence, we know him and we get a sense, a greater sense of knowing, a greater sense of who he is, and how important it is to carry that beyond church. And we'll talk a little bit about that later, into the world where we can make God known. And so to start this morning specifically about time, no matter what your experience about time has been, one of the things we have to come to peace with in some way is that time is God's idea. Time isn't actually a human construct. It isn't something men made up. Time is actually God's idea. You say, I must prove that to you. Well, let's go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, because the beginning is always a very good place to start. And so the verse will come up on the screen, but there's a verse in Genesis chapter 1 where God's creating the universe. He's creating everything we know, see, and ever will experience. God's busy making that. And in Genesis 1 verse 14, he writes, it's on the fourth day of creation that this actually happens. So really early on, God institutes time. Genesis 1.14 said, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. So the sun and the moon. Okay, God creates them on the fourth day. Let there be vaults in the, uh, lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Time is in created order. Time is God's idea. Now, perhaps how we relate to time and how we relate to this, thing, this concept that God made, that can depend on personality. Perhaps you're highly dysfunctional like me and you are bound by time and believe time is incredibly important. It's quite interesting in, in marriage often how God pairs us with people who um, are identical to us in our view of time. Is this, the men should not laugh loudly now. I'm just warning you. Okay. How we interact with time can depend on personality. Uh, it can depend on the family you grew up. It can even depend largely also on culture. But time is not a cultural construct. Time is God's idea. Why am I saying this? Because it means that time is good. Everything at the end of day four when God said, I made the sun and the moon to give you light and to, to mark the times and seasons and years, it was good. So I'm sorry if you've been deeply hurt by time, but it's actually good. Because it's good and because it's God's idea, in the way we practice time and exercise time, there should be some understanding of the nature and the character of God in that. Um, even when we're late, God wants us to be kind and reflect his goodness in those spaces. And so three thoughts that I'd like to just unpack and examine to expand on this idea and about stewarding time. Firstly, that all time, all time is God's time, and it's therefore actually sacred. All time is God's time, and therefore it's actually sacred. What do I mean by sacred in the sense? I mean that it belongs to God, that time should be used primarily 
for God's ends, for God's purposes, for what God wants. It's a gift that comes from a good and a loving Father that He gives us, and therefore it should be used for His purposes. But we have a challenge. We have a problem when it comes to time, in that particularly if you've grown up in cultures influenced by Western thought, particularly, and all of us in this room would be a victim of this great, what I call a great modern misconception around time. Now, there's always been a bit of tension if we, if we look through some of history about how people view time and how much time is God's and how much time is mine, and different people have written on that. But something happened in the 17, 1800s around the time in the way that particularly people started thinking around time. One of the things, the main thing that happened is people started thinking about time in a divided way. Up until this time, up until this moment in history, let me not be too redundant here. Um, up until this moment in history, time was seen as one thing. But from the 17, 1800s, it entered people's thoughts and became quite established that there can be time that is sacred, that belongs to God, and then there's time that is secular, that God's got nothing to do with or that God has no interest in. It's a modern misconception that there's this sacred-secular divide. Now, I'm not talking about time that is holy or unholy. That's a little bit different. The idea here is that there's time that God cares about and then there's time that God's not really interested in, a sacred-secular split. Sometimes people talk about this in terms of public and private, this idea that life is two domains, that there's a public aspect of your life and that there's a private aspect of your life. It wasn't always that way in history. It's only a way that people have thought for about 200 years now. Now, that's a while because it's older than all of us, but we inherit this as we come into modern culture, that there's parts of my life that are private and parts that are public. Um, perhaps one of the places that I remember this being played out is, uh, let's pick on the American presidents, because it's fun to do, sorry for the Americans. Um, we love the Americans. But your presidents are interesting. Um, you may remember one of the previous presidents, his name was Bill Clinton, and he got caught up in a, an affair. Um, and he actually got impeached for it. He got, like, the Congress took him on. And eventually he was allowed to stay in office. And one of the things I remember from that time is they said the reason that it was okay that he could stay the president even though he had done some things really wrong and immoral was that what he did in his private life didn't affect what he did in his public life. There's a very, that's the sacred secular split being played out, that what I do in private doesn't affect. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in Christ, is not the biblical view of time. The biblical view of time is that all time is God's time. What you do in private probably matters more than what you do in public. All time is God's time and, sac and therefore sacred. Now this idea that, that time is split or divided uh, plays out very much in our modern lives and how we allocate our time. And I want to try and illustrate this a little bit more. And I want to talk to you about something that I call the other hundred hours. The other hundred hours. I first became aware of this phraseology when I was involved with the young adult ministry here at Hatfield, and there was a missionary band that came and ministered in the young adult situation. Their band's name was actually a hundred hours. And so, we, you know, we asked did they practice guitar a hundred hours, or it was a different concept that they had. It works a little bit like this. In a week, 24 hours a day times seven, there's about 168 hours. Not about, there are. The sun and the moon define this for us. It's God's idea. Okay, there's 168 hours. 
Now, if we believe the sleep scientists and the best research on that, you should be sleeping a minimum of seven hours a day, but preferably eight or more. Um, only single-digit percentage of the population, by the way, can sleep five or six hours a day. So it's very unlikely that that's you. If you're sleeping less than seven or eight hours, um, you probably need more sleep. But let's say you, on average, people sleep about eight hours a day, which leaves us then, it's about 56 hours, so that leaves us with 112 hours in our week to do. Now, you have to sleep, so that's compulsory. The other part of compulsory time is you have to eat. Amen? And if you're South Africa, you eat well. And you, and you cut it, and you bry, and you do different things. But let's say, for argument's sake, you spend about another seven hours a week eating, an hour a day. 20 minutes breakfast, 20 minutes lunch, and chew supper really quickly. Okay. Roughly. You may do more or less, but if we average it out. So sleep taken off, eating time taken off, you're left with about 105 hours in the week. Now, for most of us in this room, some of that time is going to go to church activities or relating with God. Maybe that's attending the service, which might be an hour and a half to two hours. Uh, if you come a bit later, half an hour, which is a little thin, okay? Um, not saying anything. Um, <clears throat> but maybe two hours on a Sunday at church, and perhaps if you're involved in a life group, there's another two or three hours there. But so the average Christian might spend between two and five hours directly engaged with church activities. If you're part of like our worship teams here, you probably average about seven hours a week. That's why they do so well. You see, there's just more time in church. That's no, not what I'm advocating, actually. But if you take off that time, say the two to five hours, what you're left with then in your week, the average week, is about 100 hours. And it's this other 100 hours where you're not sleeping, eating, and uh, doing directly church-related things that often we tend to think, well, that 100 hours is mine. I want to say this morning that God cares as much about those other 100 hours as he does about this time here that you're in church this morning. This time in church is very important. We'll talk about that in a moment. But God cares about the other 100 hours. He really cares about what you do with the eight hours a day or plus for a lot of people that you're at work. He really cares about the time that you're at home with your family. He really cares about... Um, how much time you spend on social media and what you're doing with it. Okay. Um, I have the privilege of working with part of our, one of our teams that oversees the social media. And the, the guys are actually quite awesome. We've got a badge from Facebook. I better get this right. That, that says we're very good because we respond. Now, don't test us on this, please, okay? But in general, we have a badge from Facebook that says we respond within three minutes to anything posted on our Facebook. Do you know that? So some people here just don't sleep. They just, okay. I've actually told them they're not allowed to do that. They're not allowed to respond at 2 o'clock in the morning anymore. I don't care what happens to the badge. It's not right. Okay, so if you're posting at 2 in the morning, why? <laughs> why? But time spent on social media, this other 100 hours God cares about deeply. In fact, I think those 100 hours are sometimes more important to God than the two hours or the hour and a half that you spend in church on a Sunday because time is God's idea and all time is sacred. Coming at the same thing perhaps from a different angle, we've started speaking and using language here in Hatfield where we talk about the church gathered and the church scattered. By church gathered we mean this, it's when we come together in various meetings here on a Sunday, on a Wednesday night seeking, life group meetings, that's church gathered. Church scattered is when we engage in those other hundred hours that I've just spoken about. 
Now, if you want to think about church gathered and church scattered, the first thing you have to realize is when we talk about church, we're talking about a people, not a building, because it's very difficult to build and scatter this building every week. So we tried. Um, church gathered, church scattered, you have to think of church as people. We are the church, and sometimes we gather, and sometimes we scatter. And I think this is a rhythm in God. I think this is intentional, what God wants to do. If we study church history, we saw that they would do this. They would gather and they would scatter. It's a pattern that's been part of the church uh, for, for thousands of years, actually. We want to see God's glory on display. We want to see God's glory on display when we gather as a community of believers. And we want to see God's glory on display when we scatter. We want to live in a both-and world. We want to have our cake and eat it. Amen. We want glory here, and we want glory when we are scattered. Is that okay? It's critically important. Why do we gather? Why do we have a church gathering? Why does the New Testament say we must not forsake the gathering together of the brothers and the sisters? Why must we gather? Now, probably in a room this size with a number of people here, there'd be hundreds of reasons about why you came to church this morning. Perhaps you came to worship. Perhaps you came just to tick the box so that God's not angry with you for the other hundred hours. You've done your duty and you can now go and live your life. Perhaps you came here because you're desperate. Perhaps you came here because you're feeling guilty about something. Perhaps you came here because you love God. And probably for all of us it's mixed at some parts, different things for different times that you come to church. So why do we gather we gather to worship. We gather to meet with God. We gather to encounter God, if I can use that language. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us we gather so that we can be edified. Edified means to be built up. We gather so that we can be built up. I can be built up as I encounter God in worship and as I give Him glory. I encounter Him and something of His goodness and His kindness rubs off on me and I can take that with me in the world. Sometimes I come because I'm lonely or broken and desperate or guilty and I can be built up when I encounter Jesus or I encounter people who love me well because people don't only come to church to meet God they come to church to meet you and how kind are you it's, I've heard some wonderful stories about people that come here and the people sitting next to him in the row are just so kind that they decide this is where they want to make their spiritual home well done you showed God to, to somebody you showed God to somebody so we gather to be built up. We hear the word of God so that it can encourage us, equip us, disciple us, give us what we need so that we can grow and learn. We gather for those reasons. But then we scatter because we take the goodness and the kindness of God, the gospel, the good news, into the other hundred hours. So it doesn't help that we just gathered and it doesn't help that we just scattered. We must be a gathered and a scattered community. Because all time is God's time, and therefore sacred. This does not mean, just in case you haven't got my point, that you're supposed to be in church more. This does not mean you're supposed to take a substantial block of those other hundred hours and spend more time praying, reading your Bible. You should be doing all those things. But God cares as much about your praying and your worship as He does about you cooking meals for your family, providing for your family, driving the kids to sport, all those things. Work is God's idea. Did you know that? Work is God's idea. God told Adam and, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, that would be funny. Adam and Eve, God told Adam and Eve 
to tend the garden before they sinned. Work is not because of sin. Work is because it's God's idea. He's built it into us that we need to work. God cares about all your time. There's no part of your life that has nothing to do with God. If you can remember that, then I've done a good job. So all time is God's time and therefore sacred. But I'd like to share just three aspects of a view on sacred time, on a view on time, how we use our time to put God's glory on display. So a view of sacred time. There's a scripture that I'd like us to, to, we'll bring it up on the screen shortly to look at. It's a scripture that the first time since I first heard it, and I can't remember where exactly that was, it's really captured my imagination. It's in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, Habakkuk, if you want to say it in a different way. Um, Habakkuk just sounds like I went to Bible school, so that's how I say it. Habakkuk chapter 2, so if you start at Matthew and you go left, Habakkuk's that way. Um, it's one of the minor prophets. Um, chapter 2 is a very interesting chapter. It's the chapter, uh, chapter 2 verse 4 is the, the, the verse that Paul quotes when he says, the just shall live by faith. And it, basically everything Paul writes in Galatians and Romans is built on what we know as Habakkuk 2.4. But about 10 verses further in that chapter, in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, there's this very interesting verse. Um, God has basically told the Israelites that judgment's coming on them. That's what Habakkuk's told them. But that what will carry them through the hard time is it if they have faith, if they believe that God would do what he said he would do. And he encourages them with that, and then he speaks judgment on the, depending on your Bible translation, the Assyrians or the Chaldeans, same people, just different names, um, that we're going to bring, this, that God tells them, look, you're executing my purpose now, but um, if I can use modern language, you'll get yours too. What's coming to you will come to you as well. And in the middle of this, there's this verse, Habakkuk 2.14, that says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For the earth, everything we know, will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of God just like the waters cover the sea. In other words, fully immersed. The earth will be fully immersed with the knowledge of the glory of God. Simply means, simply what that means is that people will know who God is and what he is like. That's God's glory, who God is and what he is like, and, and he will manifest himself. He will become known on the earth. Now, one way to read this prophecy is to think of it as something that's future, that's still going to happen. I like to think of it a little bit differently, and I could be wrong, it's fine, um, so could you, but this is my view. Is that okay? <clears throat> I think this is a prophecy in progress or a prophecy in process. I think this is a prophecy that started even in the nation of Israel, where God was showing the world through the nation of Israel what he was like. I think when Jesus came, it really went up a gear, where God himself came and lived among us and showed us his glory. That's what the Apostle John says in his gospel. He dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And as the church now, we take it and when we go and we show people the shape and the texture of God and we show them what he's like and we bring the good news they come to the knowledge of what God is really like. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And I believe this is fulfilled through us, through the church. I think God sometimes fulfills it supernaturally where he appears to people and they come to know him. But I think the normal modus operandi, the normal way things would happen, is that his glory is revealed. People come to the knowledge of the glory of God through his people, through the body of Christ, through you and me. 
And I want to suggest, if we view time as sacred time, that that's probably one of the goals towards which we should orientate our time, is that the earth must be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. So when I go to work, how am I bringing the knowledge of the glory of God? Now that might sound a little heavy, but it's take what you know about God and bring it into all your spaces and places. Take what you've experienced and what you've understood about God and take it with you to where you go. And as you do that faithfully, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. So time is best used, I believe, to put God's glory on display. Remembering a story, um, it's a little bit off script, but I recently had the privilege of going with Brian from our missions department to me, visited some ministries um, in and around Greece that work with a lot of the refugees that come from the Middle East. And essentially what this ministry does is they, they start places where they're just kind to refugees. They show them the love and the kindness of God. And what's interesting, the one testimony I heard was from a man who came from a Muslim background five, six years ago, and uh, he got his asylum visa, and he was staying in the place that the government provided for him, but the family was really suffering. I think he had five or six children, and they were living on a, like a loaf of French bread a day, which is not enough. Okay? And they were really suffering, and then they heard about this place where they were being kind to refugees, but they heard that it was Christians there. And his whole life, he'd been taught that Christians are crusaders, if I can use that language, you understand? Christians are militant, and they're against you, and they're out to get you, and they're cruel. His whole life, that's all he'd ever heard. And so he really didn't want to go there because he didn't want to be associated with those people. But eventually, his wife got so hungry, and she was so worried about the children, she said, I don't care what you think, I'm going because there's food there. And she went there and she got a meal and she suddenly started experiencing Christian people that were kind, that weren't at all like she thought and that everything she'd ever heard, known or believed, they weren't like that at all. And she came back and she you know, wasn't evil and hadn't changed much and her husband saw this and eventually he went and he came to know Jesus Christ as well as a, as a Muslim convert. And now five years later he's been discipled and he's actually leading a service at this ministry place in Farsi. And he worships in Farsi and he teaches the Bible in Farsi and he's showing the kindness of God. That is how the knowledge of the glory of God comes through the world. It also happens supernaturally. It really can happen supernaturally. I would love it if while we're preaching in church, you get up after the service and God has sovereignly healed you. No one's prayed for you, just been in the presence of God and, and you healed. That's also the glory of God. It's a both and that we need to have. So, sacred time, uh, let's put God's glory on display. There's another scripture in the Bible, another perspective on time, uh, quite well known. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where God speaks specifically about time. And he says there's a, a Solomon writes in the first eight verses, we're only going to look at the first verse, and he says, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. And then it lists all kinds of different seasons, a time to be happy, a time to be sad, a time for this, a time for that. I think one of the things that's helpful when we engage with God's view of time is to realize that God works in seasons. This is my experience. Often we get so caught up in the instantaneous, in minutes and hours, and, you know, God, I've prayed now for three minutes, where's the answer? I think God's far more concerned about process and the journeys that we're on and the direction in which we are journeying 
than on instant satisfaction. And we live in a culture where instant is better. You can go buy it now and then you know, pay back for the rest of your life um, on credit and things like that. That's the culture we live in. But God tends to work in seasons. And it's very important that we learn to discern the seasons of our lives. So just like there's natural seasons, summer, winter, autumn, spring. In winter, you dress appropriately for the season. Well, most people. You get a few people that walk around in shorts in winter. We won't name names, we'll just cast eyes. Um, there's some people that don't get cold, apparently. But for most of us, you dress appropriately for the season. And it's critical that we learn to understand what's the season of life that I'm in. What's, what season has God got me in, in life? If you're sitting in the back half of the room on that side, you're in the toddler season, most likely. Sorry. But, but when you have young ones, it radically changes your life. Not so. Suddenly, you're not as free as you used to be, and you're doing all kinds of other things, and you just want to go for a movie or come to church undisturbed, but this is no longer possible because you're in a season. Now, the good thing is that season will end. Others will start, but that one will end. And for all of us, we're in a season. In our personal lives, we can be in seasons. And if we can discern the season, we can behave appropriately and we can take the pressure off ourselves. If you're raising a toddler, you just can't be at church every night of the week. In fact, I want to suggest you're not at church every night of the week if you're raising a toddler. Do you understand? Because it's not appropriate for the, the seasons. Okay, I'll stop picking on you guys now. Sometimes in our corporate spaces, in our companies and in our businesses, there's seasons as well where we need to discern what season our companies are in. In organizational terms, if you want it, life cycle. Where's your company or your business in its life cycle? And if you know where it is, you know what's better strategy and not good strategy. You know how to lead. You know how to do things differently. We're in a season of economic downturn in South Africa by all the indicators that I read, no matter who publishes them. And so when you're in a tight season economically, there's more fitting behavior. There's some things you do, there's some things you don't do. Do we understand? And so it's important to discern the seasons because there's a time and a season for everything. Not everything has to happen this week. You don't have to know your Bible 100% by the end of the week. Although Jesus will incredibly love you more if you do. No, you don't. You've got your whole life to learn the Bible. You've got the rest of your days on earth to know God better, to understand the Bible better. And if you're consistent at it in a year's time or two years' time, you will be better. God cares more about process and journey than on instant satisfaction. So what season are you in? And are you walking with God in that season this morning? Last idea in this regard around time being sacred is we must understand that time is in God's hands. Time is in God's hands. We think we can control time by managing our calendars and doing all those things well. But actually, time is in God's hands. Psalm 31, 15 uh, basically says, it won't come up on the screen, but if I can explain it, it just says, my times are in your hands. And then the next line is, deliver me from trouble. <laughs> so even when you're in troubled times, your times are in God's hands. In Daniel chapter 2, 21, Daniel speaks a lot about time. He's got significant prophecies about time. But he says this at the beginning of the book, which is the foundation for everything else he says about time. In chapter 221, he says that God changes the times and the seasons. He deposes kings and he raises them up. 
time is in God's hands. And God, if you're in a season and you're trusting for breakthrough, for example, that's in God's hands. He will change the season. And if the breakthrough is not coming when you hoped for it, expected it, or even in your view you need it, time is still in God's hands. And he will change the season. That's why it's important to know the season. It's also important to know when the season changes. Otherwise, you're still living like you were supposed to 10 years ago. But actually, it's summer already. Stop wearing the coat. Okay. It's important that we understand that God is the one who changes the seasons. He owns time. We steward it. We manage time. God owns the time, and we manage it. So, are you ready to steward God's time? Are you ready to steward God's time, to invest time in putting his glory on display? So we've said that God cares about all your time. And so we talk a lot now, and we'll talk a lot more about being a whole life disciple. We don't just want to disciple you at Hatfield on what you do here on a Sunday. We can disciple you to pray, to read your Bible, hopefully to sing better, um, to listen so nicely and obediently when someone's preaching. God wants to disciple every area of your life, whether you're raising your children, whether you're at family, whether you're at work, your private thoughts. Whatever you do, God cares about all your time. And he's calling us to be disciples. Disciple simply means one who follows after Christ. We need to start modeling our lives after Christ in every area. As a husband, as a father, how do I model Christ better in these spaces? We need to learn, uh, sorry, let me say it this way. When we want to be good stewards of, the, of time, we need to learn to make the most of every opportunity. We need to learn to make the most of every opportunity. Both Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, and Ephesians 5, 16 say this idea. They say that we need to make the most of every opportunity, particularly if, when we're engaging with unbelievers or when we're in situations that aren't church-gathered holy, comfortable spaces. Because the, Ephesians says there's lots of evil in the world, Colossians says, when we're engaging with unbelievers. Some of the older translations say it really nicely. They say we must redeem the time. As good stewards, we need to make most of every opportunity. Now, some of those opportunities are about helping someone on their next step towards God. Some of those opportunities are about leading people to Christ. Some of those opportunities are being kind to your children and showing them that you care and that you present. Good stewards make the most of every opportunity of their time. Now if I can do one thing quite quickly, just really practically. A practical tip that I've found immensely helpful over many years now that helps me be a, a better steward of God's time. Now no one I don't think ever arrives but the, the tip is this, is that we need to learn to plan with God one week at a time. We need to learn to plan with God one week at a time. Often when we think about managing time, we tend to think in days. And what often happens in spaces is you make a list, and depending how busy you are, and it's interesting how we define importance by being busy, isn't it? You know, if you're in the workplace and you look really busy, then you're supposed to be really important, which is not actually true, <laughs> often. Okay. But sometimes we make a list of all the things we need to do, and maybe there can be 20 or 50 things on that list that we need to do. And then we start Monday, 
and we try and do everything on Monday. And then what happens? We carry over to Tuesday and add five things. And then we give it a good go on Tuesday, and then we carry over to Wednesday and we add five things. And eventually we've got 60 things on the list instead of the 50 we started with. And then we just give up because weekend's coming. Okay. It's often more helpful to try and plan our time with the perspective of a week. Um, I first heard this from uh, Pam Ferreira, this phrase, but I'm not sure if it's original to her, but I heard it. She said this. She said, we overestimate what we can do in a day, but we underestimate what we can do in a week. We overestimate what we can do in a day, but we underestimate what we can do in a week. And so what's really helpful is what I like to practice is perhaps at the end of the week somewhere, I sit and I make a list of the things I need to do or that I know are important to do in the following week. And then I look at the whole week, seven days, and I try and block time in for when I'm going to do those things. So I know on Monday, I'm not washing the car. That's on Thursday. Then I forget about it until Thursday. I'm not having this meeting on Tuesday. I'm having it on Friday, and I can prepare for it on Wednesday. I block time to actually do all the things on the list. So it's very helpful to block time. The principle, though, is that you put in the big blocks first, the things that are most important. Now, sometimes that might be a meeting at work that you've got in first because that occupies its time and then everything else has to work around that. But we need to be careful that the big blocks that we put into our calendars and into our, our time and how we think about it aren't just generated by work and aren't just generated by the, the needs and the urgent things in our lives. The big blocks are also things like spending time with family, because all time is God's time. All time is sacred. And so God cares that you spend time with your family. There's time to rest. There is, you can block me time. It's an awesome thing. Okay, I don't mean me time. You know the time that you need to rest and recover? Whatever that might mean. Has anyone heard of me time? Okay, moms, they especially need me time. Husbands, me time for your wife. Um, you can block me time. It's an amazing thing how... You know, if someone calls you and they say, can you do this for me? And you say, I'm sorry, I have an appointment. Very few people argue with that. That appointment might be with yourself and for yourself, but it's not negotiable. As soon as it's in your diary, it's important. We have this interesting view of calendars and diaries in our world. But block time to spend on your own, resting, refreshing and restoring. Block time to spend with God. If you don't put the big blocks in, you'll never get to them. God cares as much about you raising your children as he cares about you attending prayer meetings. They're both God's time. They're both sacred things that you do. Some of you might be wondering, what happens if I sin? Then you're abusing God's time. Okay, that's not sacred then. <laughs> then you're using time for the purposes that it was never intended for. So all time is God's time. And so while you're at work, God cares about that time. That time is sacred because you're providing for your family. And in your workspace, you're putting God's glory on display by living for Christ. So as we end this morning, how is your time? Do you live with divided time where there's things that matter to God and things that don't? Do you live with time there where there's things that are public and things that are private? Do you live with a... I've done my church duty, tick that box, and the other hundred hours are mine. Is your time divided or is your time unified? Is all time in your life God's time? 
As I was preparing, I came across a quote by a preacher who lived in the 1800s. His name is Charles Spurgeon. It's always good to quote Spurgeon every now and then, apparently. But Spurgeon wrote about this, and, I, and sorry, it won't come up on the screens. I found it after I'd submitted the thing, so I'll do my best to read it well. But Spurgeon said it this way. In 1874, apparently, according to the internet, he said this in 1874. He said, to a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment, and it is a vestment to him. In other words, it's a priestly clothes. He puts on his workday garment and it's a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal and it is a sacrament. It becomes a holy space. He goes forth to his labor, to his job, and therein he exercises the office of the priesthood. He represents God at work. His breath is incense and his life is a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom, bosom sorry, of God. Some of us need to sleep on the bosom of God. Do not sleeping enough. He sleeps on the bosom of God and he lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and a fast line, Spurgeon says that this is sacred and this is secular is to my mind diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and to the spirit of the gospel. Can we be a people where nothing is sacred and sorry, where everything is sacred and nothing is secular? Where God can be part of every hour of every day. Of those hundred hours, it really matters what you do. And so at Hatfield, we talk about bringing God's kingdom in hearts and in homes and beyond. And if we want to be ready for more, we have to be good stewards of the gift of time that God has given us. So that in our home, our time is orientated to bringing God's kingdom. And when we go to the workplaces and the beyond, whatever the beyond is for you, that we can change our world through influence. We can bring his glory wherever we go. And so are you ready to invest your time? And as we move just to a time of prayer, perhaps you're here because it's just too much. You just do not have enough hours in the day to do what everybody expects of you and to do what is put on you and you're battling to cope. We want to pray for you this morning that God can give you wisdom, planning weeks with God, pray through your weeks with God. God gives you wisdom on how to allocate things and to block things so that you feel like you've got some space just to breathe. I also want to say this, and I don't mean to be irreverent, but God's not a time cop. God's not watching every minute. God's not a time Nazi. And he doesn't expect you to become a time hero either. He wants you to discern the season and walk with him in the season. And then you'll find that there's a grace because he's good and he's kind. And then there's space and grace on our lives to accomplish what God wants us to do. As we were praying in one of the prayer meetings before the service this morning, one of the ladies had a word and she said, our victory is through surrender. And perhaps for some of us this morning, it's when we surrender our time to God. And I've had this experience where I surrender my week to God and I just don't know how I'm going to get everything possibly done. But I come to the end of the week and somehow God has aligned things that it all just worked out. Our victory is through surrender. And so can I invite you to stand this morning? Whatever your point of need is, whether you're battling to cope, perhaps you're feeling there's just too much pressure on you. Think in seasons 
and think in weeks, and our victory will be through surrender. Father, thank you that you've given us the gift of time. Thank you that this is part of your kindness towards us. And so I want to pray, Lord, for those in the room who are battling. It's just too much pressure, and there's just not enough hours in the day to get everything done. First of all, Lord, I pray for comfort that as we've encountered your presence through this service, that we would know your kindness and your grace. So I pray for comfort. And then I pray, Lord, for wisdom. Wisdom to discern the seasons. Wisdom to know what to pick up and what to put down. Wisdom to know which plates must be kept spinning and which plates can fall. Pray for an ability to discern, Lord, and to know what is appropriate for the season. I pray for us all that we can discern the season of God in our life and then walk with you and behave and structure our lives appropriately in that way. And so thank you, Lord, that everything is sacred, that this is your gift to us and that you care deeply that we rest, that we have fun with our families, that we work, that we worship. Thank you, Lord, that you care. You're a good father. We bless you, Lord. I pray your blessing on each one here under the sound of my voice and listening, that you will go with us in the week, that you will keep us and protect us, guide us, bless our families, bless our coming and our going. But more than that, Lord, we ask that your presence would go with us. We surrender, Lord, to your presence. In Jesus' name. Amen. Trust you have a good week. If you would like prayer for anything specific, some of our pastors and elders will be up front to pray for you. We'd love to do that. If you want to be baptized, there is baptism happening in the functional. If you go out through those doors and you head right, there's a hall there. If you want to be baptized and use your time for that, it would be wonderful. You're welcome to come for prayer.